Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf Samachet, page 68. And with this daf, or in this daf, on this daf, we finish Perak Shishi, the sixth Perak, and we move on, very briefly, I guess, to Perak Shvi'i. We will embark more on Perak Shvi'i tomorrow. Um, before we jump in, a reminder, our Siyum of Masachet Yuma is coming on July 11th, um, at 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Seaboard time. And if you want to speak, if you have words that you would like to share, we would all like to hear them, and please let us know. The forum is available now on our WhatsApp group, on our Facebook page, and you can reach out to us, and we can you know, always provide it uh, individually if you need it. I am going to deal right now with the Mishnah that's at the very end of our daf. Um, no, that's not true. It's at the very end of our parak, which is on Amud Bet. Um, there is, I think, a good amount to discuss that comes before this. Per- most particularly, what I found interesting was there's a, a good amount of discussion of the phrase, Michutz Lamachana, when something is outside the camp. And the question is, they're specifically talking about removing the ash of, of what is burned, and it has to be taken, Michutz Lamachana, and this is, you know, ostensibly the ashes of the sin offering of the Kohen, of the Kohen Gadol, right? And and the question then is exactly where does this go and what counts as Michutz Lamachana and how far does it have to be and so on. And I'm not actually going to talk about it because because we're rushing to get to the end of the parak and, and the Mishnah is also very interesting. But I would just note that I'm sure we'll actually encounter the, the concept and the issues of Michutz Lamachana later in, in Shas, uh, so keep in mind that this is where it it appears in a in a pretty thorough, nice kind of way. Um, and it is worth reading more carefully if you haven't already done so. Okay, our Mishnah. Here we go. Uh, this is, again, this is towards the end of the day of the Avoda, right? This is exactly what we're talking about. The Avoda of, on the one hand, of the Korban Chatat, and the other hand, the, the goat. So we're still, now this is going to still be talking about the goat out in the wilderness. Amrul Elohim Gadol. The goat gets out to the wilderness. How did they know that the goat reaches the wilderness? Now, of course, this is an interesting question. If, you're, if you've been paying attention to how the Mishnah describes exactly this procedure, well, then you know that, that there's, they set up these 10 booths and they track out to the wilderness, right? And, and any, everybody who's paying attention, you know, they're following along. He's got an entourage now because people want to see. And, and and help him out if he needs any help. The guy, I mean, not the goat. And so it's an interesting question to me. How do you know? How did how did they know that the goat got to the midbar? So the Mishnah here says they would know because they would build these platforms, these dear kaot. Uh, along the way, which is, I, I don't, I'm curious, and if I were not learning Dafyomi, but I was learning Iyun here, I would want to do a big study of exactly what's the difference here between the Dirkaot and the Sukkot that we saw in the previous Mishnah, or the a few Mishnah ago, um, that says, right, here they would build these platforms all the way along, and then people would stand on them, and then what would they do? Megifin Bisudarin, they would wave their, their scarves or their handkerchiefs, right, to signal when the goat has arrived, meaning so then the people standing at the previous platforms could see that he, the goat has made his way to the next one and the next one and the next one. So it's kind of like a 
a relay signal to to pass on the information that the that the travel is happening the way it's supposed to. And then so they know when they get, go gets to the midbar. I'm Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda says, "Vahalo siman gadol hayalahem miyushalayim vaadbeit chidudo shlosha milin holchin mil vchuzrin mil vshohin kedei mil biyodin shegiasa ir lamidbar." Rabbi Huda says, "Like, what do you need these platforms for?" I mean, he doesn't use those words. He says, "Didn't they already know? They already had a reliable indication of when the goat would get to the midbar because they know that from Jerusalem to Beit Chidudo." Um, is right. Beit Chidudo is supposed to, supposedly at the edge of the wilderness, right? So, and then at that's the place where they would, you know, then dispatch the goat. So that's a distance of three mil from Jerusalem to Beit Chidudo, and so then the people of Jerusalem who would walk that mil to escape, to to go with the guy who's taking the goat, and then they would go back a mil, right? They would so that's they're walking to Mili on Yom Kippur, but then they would wait the amount of time to go another meal, and then they would know that the goat had reached the wilderness, meaning they're walking with him for one meal. They walk back home, back to into the city for a second meal, and they know how long that takes, and they have to wait a third, the amount of time of a third meal till the guy will get to the wilderness. And now they know, meaning that amount of time has passed. Clearly, they're in the wilderness. And that should be its own indicator, right? You don't need to stand and watch and wave. Rabbi Yishmael says we've got a whole other way to know, a whole another indication of how they would know when the goat got to the wilderness. He says, well, remember that strip of crimson that was tied at the entrance of the Heichal? So that as soon as the goat gets to the wilderness, that strip that is red, right, is going to turn white. And the, the implication here is that the, that happens, or it's not an implication. He's saying it straight out. Rabbi Shmuel says that happens when the goat gets to the wilderness, not when the goat is thrown off the cliff. But at the, from the moment of the wilderness, that's when that mitzvah has been fulfilled. That's when that atonement apparently kicks in. And straight away, the scarlet thread or whatever it is, a strip of, of fabric will turn white. And then everybody will know that the goat is in the wilderness. And more importantly, that the atonement you know, has been accepted. So all of this, these three different approaches, um, if nothing else, you know, indicate to us that there was a vast, you know, a rapt attention and vast curiosity over the process of the goat till he would get to the wilderness. People are waiting with bated breath because this is, you know, a very key aspect of the essence of the avoda of Yom Kippur. And so whatever means it is that you get to know that ooh, now the goat is in the wilderness is a big deal. You know, it was it was a big deal and people were waiting and they wanted to know. And Apparently, at least according to the mission, this Mishnah, there were at least three different ways that that information could be ascertained. Now, the Gemara here is tiny. It's one of these long Mishnah, Mishnah or medium-sized Mishnah, anyway. And then it closes the parak with a tiny bit of Gemara, which basically just says, So the question is, where is Beit Chidudo in the wilderness? Right? Is it just at the edge, or is it really in the wilderness? And here... Um, Abaya's contention is that it's in the wilderness. And then, So 
So this is what I said already, that, that Rabbi Yehuda's position is that as soon as the goat reaches the wilderness, before it's pushed off the cliff, the mitzvah is done, it is complete, and he does, and you don't have to wait any longer to to question, to, to hold your breath, for, basically, for the goat to get to the wilderness. And as far as that goes, um, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conclusion, I suppose, because we've spent so much attention, we, we, um, you, your data, I, our co-learners, to, we just paid so much attention to the procedure of pushing the goat up the cliff, and it's graphic, and it's, you know, distressing, and perhaps, you know, the focus of the people could re- be removed from that goat as soon as he gets to the wilderness. And that, in so- at some level, that is enough. Yeah, the, the Gemara seems to be sort of like, once you get to the wilderness, it's done. Um, you know, and they there's this ambivalence about watching what actually happens to Seyar Hamish And again, I'm going to contend, you know, as I said yesterday, with the person who pushes the goat, that their clothes become tame. I think they're ambivalent about the procedure. It's gory. It's gruesome. And so, like, do you really need to prove it happened? Do you need to, like, show a ripped limb or something like that? The fact that he made it out there might be good enough for everybody. I, I think I think you have a strong point here. And I think the other thing is that the way, the, the fact that the Mishnah works hard to give us two other ways of knowing that the, that the goat gets to the Midbar, gets out to the wilderness, Besides this idea of they built platforms and they were standing, you know, all of the, you know, the, I don't know, the privileged people of Jerusalem who would go out to sea and they would wave their scarves, which seems to have a lot more pomp and circumstance and ceremony, right, than the second two options, which seem to be much simpler. And it, I wonder to what extent that was really, you know, an underlying you know, tension between how should this Yom Kippur be presented? Is it something that is with a lot of pomp and circumstance and ceremony? Or is it something that is a simple atonement for the people? And the really big deal is knowing when that moment happens. And not that you have to be there to see it. It's just a matter of, you know, having that relief that, yes, indeed, you know, we've we've achieved the Avoda on Yom Kippur. It's just uh, a thought. I don't have an, I don't have yeah, a. Yeah, I, I know, but I think it's a good thought. Well, thank you. Okay, you're up. We've got a new parak. All right, so now we're on to a new parak. Um, and Wait, I, really, we, oh, yes. Now we're starting the sixth parak. We went through a lot. Can we start the new parak? Not start the new parak, but we'll start with the new parak. And now the parak really. That's what this parak is called. Right. So, so now we're on to a new parak, and we really shift gears here. Um, and we're back inside of the Beit HaMikash. And we sort of finished an important part of the Avoda. Um, and now we get to an, another thing that the Kohen Gadol has to do. Bala Kohen Gadol Likro. The Kohen Gadol now comes to read from the Torah. So the first question here is, what clothing does he wear? We know that all the other times that uh, we saw what the Kohen Gadol did, there's a lot of switching clothes going to the mikvah, changing your clothes again, and things like that. Here it says he can wear the big day kahuna, or he doesn't have to. He can actually wear his own clothes. And the Gemara will comment on that. We'll read that a little bit. And then there's this procession that happens with the Sefer Torah itself. Chazan HaKanesa notel Sefer Torah, v'nono l'rosh HaKanesa, v'rosh HaKanesa notel l'skan, v'skan notel l'kohen gadol, v'kohen gadol minu mekavel. So first it goes to the Chazan, to the head of the Beit Knesset, to the Skan, the deputy kohen gadol, and then to the kohen gadol. And what does the Kohen Gadol read? 
So he reads Achimot, which is basically chapter 16, which has the Avoda of Yom Kippur, the Achbesor. And then he reads uh, later on uh, what happens, some of the Korbanos uh, for Yom Kippur, which is in Vayikra chapter 23. The Golel Sefer Torah, Manichob Echaikov Omer. So he, you know, he uh, opens the Torah scroll, put and sort of, sort of holds it, and he says, um, "Sorry, he he rounds up the the uh, the uh, I said open. I meant he closes the Sefer Torah, and he says as he holds it, right? Yotermi Mashakarati Lipnecham Katsufkan. There's more than what I just read from you. Right, and then he reads this part starting in." Uh, Midbar chapter 29, he reads that by heart. So that's sort of interesting that he doesn't, you know, he basically saying there's a lot more that he could have read, um, but he only reads certain parts and then he recites some of it by heart. And we'll read more about this in the Gemara. There are eight blessings that he makes following this reading. Allah Torah, Allah on Torah, on the temple service, Allah Hoda'ah, on Thanksgiving that we give thanks to God, that we are uh, sort of pardoned of our sins, Al Mikdash Bifneatzmo on the temple itself, Al Yisrael Bifneatzman on Bnei Israel, Al Yerushalayim Bifneatzma on Yerushalayim, Val Kohanim Bifneatzman on the Kohanim, Val Shar Hatzfila, and then the rest of the prayer, right? And some people say that that is he says Shomei Hatzfila. So again, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the Gemara in the next stop. Haroa Kohen Gadol Kishuhu Kore, anybody who saw the Kohen Gadol read. You wouldn't be able to see the par in the Seyar be burned. So basically, there were two things that happened at the same time. And if you were there in Yom Kippur, you sort of had to decide what part you wanted to be there for. Did you want to hear the Kohen Gadol read? Or did you want to hear, um, or did you want to watch the, the carcasses be burned? And then the inverse of that as well. Not because they were uh, far apart from each other. Uh, sorry, the Lomi Rashai, not because it wasn't permitted, permitted, because they were far apart from each other, right? And remember, we talked about where exactly that burning took place, what part of Yushalayim it took place in. And they were both done basically at the same time. So, a very different and interesting part. And the first time that we see where we really talk about that part of what happened in Yom Kippur, two things took place at the same time. Whereas when the Kohen Gadol sends out the Seyar Mishtaleach, you get the sense that there's sort of like an interruption of what happens in the Beit HaMikdash. And then he waits until he knows that the Seyar Mishtaleach was pushed off the cliff, and then he resumes what he needed to do. Then the Gemara goes on to an interesting thing here. So the question they get into here is the fact that he could wear his own clothes is the reading actually not part of the avoda? The Kitani, right? So we learn a Mishnah here. Right? Because our Mishnah taught if he wants to read it in the linen garments, he can. And then they're going to get into a whole discussion here about whether or not you can get Hana from the Bigzei Kahuna. We'll read more about that tomorrow because that discussion really goes on to the next page. But what I really just wanted to pay attention to was this question of sort of by the fact that he could re, you know, wear his own clothes, do we consider Kriya Satara to be part of the Avoda or is not part of the Avoda? Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I think this poses an interesting question. What's the purpose of Kriya Satora? Did it have to happen? And I think another reason there why it may not be part of the Avoda is the fact you didn't have to hear it, right? Like, in other words, the people who are there, they either could go to the burning or they could go to the Kriya Satora. So the Kriya Satora seems to have sort of a different status by the fact that something simultaneous could happen with it, along with the fact that the Kohen Gadol could wear his own clothes as well. I'm fascinated by how the Big Day Kahuna, how these garments keep popping up, right? We've talked about them several different in several different occasions over our learning, right? Even in Shkelem, even in meaning who owns them, the role of the mother in making them, right? And now, which is perhaps maybe the most important aspect, you know, what happens to the Kohen Gadol's garments, you know, on this day and after this day. It, it makes sense to me to some extent because so much of the Avoda is in fact changing the clothes. So like they, they get this, um, you know, very great importance. On the other hand, I would feel like, and maybe we've talked about this in the past, I feel like clothing really. Right. And, and I'm, I'm enthused, right. Meaning I'm in favor of good fashion, things like that. But it's very interesting to me that this becomes such a notable part of the yom, of the day. Meaning, I know you're Dana that you're really talking about the Kriya Torah, but like, but I feel like, but the focus is also on the on the on the garments. It's you would think the focus would be on the holy words of the Torah, right? But it's also on the garments, and I I find that interesting, right? Appearance matters here, and and I don't know what identity in wearing the clothing. Yeah, I agree, and and I think this whole theme about the clothing and the changing of the clothing. So the fact that he didn't have to wear the big day kahuna, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it's clear that it's sort of, this is a break in the regular avoda. Yep. Yep. That's it. There you go. Like the fact that it's a break in the regular avoda, like really? Like, what do you mean we've got a break in the regular avoda right now? It seems that, like there's more to unpack here because because what is going on? Like, why is he not wearing <laughs> whatever? Yeah. Well, right? I, we'll, we'll I get think, to it. Yeah. As we dissect this mission, I think we'll we'll see more about it. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrogen website. Let us know what you thought about this top on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.